Our passage today comes from Psalm 137. If you would, please stand as I read. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This has been the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, David. Let me pray for us uh, before we begin, right? Oh, Lord God, as we approach this psalm, a difficult psalm, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of us. And may the words that I say, Lord, be from you. If they are not from you, Lord, would you cause it to be dismissed and to be forgotten? But if they are from you, Lord, would you cause it to take root in our hearts and to bear fruit with it? We pray this your son's name. Amen. My name is Tali Lau. I'm a member here. I'd like to just welcome you all to, uh, to NOVSUP and also to the beginning of the fall semester for all the TED students that are back. So I'll welcome back. Now, uh, my daughter loves to read, loves to read. Anastasia loves to read. And the genre of books that she loves to read are dystopian novels dystopian novels. And actually, dystopian novels have become very popular in the last 10 years. And they are very popular because they kind of describe societies, you know, where there's great suffering, injustice, typically one that is a very totalitarian society. And some of the stories, some of the novels that you may have come across would be, for example, like The Giver, The Divergent Series, The Hunger Games, The Handmaid's Tale, The Maze Runner, and all of them have been made into movies recently here. But we ask ourselves, why are dystopian novels gaining such a great popularity among our young adults recently? And I think that one possibility is that they kind of reflect the sense of evil, the sense of alienation, the sense of dislocation, of not belonging, the sense of pessimism, the sense of anxiety, uncertainty, frustration, alienation, and angst that the young adults experience within society. They reflect that. 
but also here today in the psalm that we are going to be taking a look at today. The psalmist is also in a situation, a very similar situation, where he experiences alienation, frustration, and evil. Now, you know, in the, we are going through the series, The Songs of Zion, and in the past series, the past songs here, they have always been positive. But when it comes to this psalm now, the tone of it is 180 degrees, where the tone is one of just frustration, alienation, evil, and pessimism itself. And so here, but nonetheless, nonetheless, within the psalm itself here, the psalmist teaches us that in the midst of alienation and evil here, it teaches us to hold fast, hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home. In the midst of alienation and evil, let us hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home. Now, the genre of this psalm is very mixed. It's part lament, it's part imprecatory, meaning that it is a psalm of imprecation, meaning that it's a psalm that calls down curses, judgment on others. But yet, but yet it is also considered a song of Zion, a psalm of Zion, because the psalmist considers Zion to be his highest joy and holds fast to the hope that he will one day return to Zion. You see, this psalm was written when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. Now, they were in an exile because of their sin, because of their repeated disobedience to the covenantal regulations, despite repeated warnings from the prophets. But despite being in exile in Babylon, God has promised that he will bring them back to the land that he gave to their ancestors. He will bring them back to Israel. And so the psalmist therefore exhorts, therefore encourages the people of Israel to hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately set all things right. God will restore them to the land that he gave their ancestors, and he will ultimately bring them back to Zion. Now, what is the implication for us? Implication is great, because like the Israelites, we too are in exile. And First Peter tells us that we are foreigners, sojourners, aliens in this world itself. And like the Israelites who long to return to Zion, we too long for the heavenly Jerusalem that is our true home. And so in this sermon series, we have seen Zion refer to different things. And Pastor Tim defines Zion as God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence. Thus, it can refer to the city of David. It can refer to the church. But for us in this psalm today here, it most certainly points forward to the Zion that is waiting for us, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that is ahead of us, ultimately to heaven. So even though, even though we are exiles in this world, God will ultimately lead us home to where we truly belong, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And so, in the midst of the alienation and evil that we experience presently, let us hold fast, hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home. But you ask yourself, how do we hold fast? How do we do that? 
And this psalmist here encourages us by three ways in terms of how we hold fast to the hope that ultimately God will bring us home. And we do that in the first four verses by lament, in verses 5 and 6 by resolved, and verses 7 to 9 by trust. Lament, resolved, and trust. And I'll just work through these three main sections in the psalm here. Beginning with lament here, how do we hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home? First thing, we do that by lamenting that this world, this world that we're currently living in, is not our home. It is not our true home. Now, the psalm begins with these four verses here. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. <laughs> but how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? You know, as we were working through this, you know, that Jeremiah had encouraged them. You remember we did Jeremiah, and they, they had encouraged them to build houses, to settle down, and to seek the welfare of Babylon. But although they are to seek the welfare of the city, nonetheless, they are to remember that the place where they truly belong is not in Babylon itself, but in Zion, in Jerusalem, because Babylon is not their home. So the psalmist says, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Zion. And to make matters worse here, some of the enemies will say, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You know, as we have been working through the songs of Zion and some of these songs celebrated the majesty and the protection of the Lord over his people, over Zion itself. They proclaimed the victory and the deliverance of the Lord itself. The psalmist therefore could not sing the songs of Zion. Now, some of you may consider this, hey, this is a great evangelistic opportunity and begin one of the first ever, you know, seeker services in biblical history. But the psalmist could not sing about the glories of Zion. He said, how can we sing the songs of Zion? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Why couldn't he sing? Why couldn't he sing? Why couldn't we sing a song of joy? They could not sing a song of joy, a song of praise, because of their deep sorrow. Because of their deep sorrow, that their city Zion lay in ruins and they are exiles in a foreign land. They could not sing a song of Zion, a song of joy, because the request for a song was not really a genuine request, but it was a taunt. It was a jeer. It was a mockery. It was to poke fun, to ridicule them. Not only them, but also their God. They were, in essence, taunting both the Israelites and God, saying, you say that your God is so powerful that your God will protect you. Where is he right now? Where is he? Look at your city. It is in ruins. They were, in essence, taunting the Israelites and their God. Why don't you sing for us a song that speaks of the power of your mighty God when your city lay in ruins? And so they couldn't. They could not sing a song in Zion in a foreign land. 
They could not sing a song of joy, but they could sing a song of lament. They could sing a song of lament and lament that the world that they're currently living in is not where they belong, that the world that they're currently living in is not their true home. And the lament in these verses are so iconic that they have been put into song even by diverse groups, even within a pop culture itself. Let me give you some examples. It's been put into song by the musical Godspell, On the Willows. It's also put into song by Don McLean in his album, American Pie, the last song in that album. And for those who lived in the disco era of the 70s, you know, it's been put into song by Boney M by the Rivers of Babylon. And this song was actually number one in UK for five weeks. And so this, the songs are so iconic that they have truly become a part of our pop culture, at least in the, in the last uh, in the last 40 years in the past. But these words here speak of loss, defeat, alienation, frustration, and angst. And some of you may be experiencing the same situation that the psalmist is facing. You may be saying that, I do not belong here. You may be saying that you don't fit here that things are not what they should be. Others taunt you for who you are, for your identity, for your orientation. Others mock you for your belief in God. And they say, if your God is so good, if your God is such a loving and caring God, why did he cause this to happen to you? You feel that you're a failure, and yet your life is like a fruitless, barren tree. The situation may be caused by your own sin, or it may be because we live in a fallen world. But nonetheless, we bring our lament before God. We lament the sin that is in us, and we lament the sin that is in the world, and we confess the sin that is in us and the sin that is in the world. And we lament that this world is not what it's supposed to be. We lament the brokenness of this world, and we lament that this world ultimately is not our home. But what is the purpose of this lament? What is the purpose of this lament? Ultimately here, it acknowledges the reality of the situation. It shows us that life sucks at times. Life hurts. That there is pain in this life on earth and that it is okay. It is okay to weep, to mourn, and to grieve. But the psalm of lament does not just give voice to the painful emotions that well within us that we experience, but it is more than that. And it reminds us ultimately of truth. For the Israelites, it was a reminder that Babylon is not where they should be. Babylon is not their home. For us, it is a reminder that this world is ultimately not a home. And it teaches us that we can continue to come to God with our pain, with the alienation and the evil that we experience. It reminds us to come to God not only in our times of joy, but also in our pain and weaknesses. That it's all right to come to God just as we are. Just as we are in our pain, in our weaknesses. 
that it is always right. It is always right to come to God just as we are. It teaches us to draw close to God. It teaches us to draw close to God in our pain because most of us would never cry in front of those who we are not familiar with. We would never do that. But here, when we pour out our hearts to the God who loves us and who cares for us, we are learning to trust in the Lord who ultimately gave his son for us and for our behalf itself. And by drawing near to him, by lamenting before him that this world is not what it's supposed to be, we learn to hold fast. We learn to hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately bring us home. So how do we hold on to the hope? We do that firstly by lamenting, by lamenting that this world is not a home. Now secondly, the way we do that, the way we hold fast to the hope is by resolve, by resolving to make heaven our highest joy. And here is reading from verses 5 to 6. It reads as follows. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill in playing the harp. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth so that I can't sing praise to you. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Now, when you read these psalms, you might be thinking that the psalmist is being, you know, nationalistic here, patriotic. While that may be true, you must remember that for the psalmist, love of Jerusalem is not separate from the love of God. For the exiles, the love of God and for Jerusalem are intertwined because Jerusalem is where the temple of the Lord is. It is where God is especially present among his people. Previously, the tormentors demanded songs of Zion, songs of joy. And the psalmist couldn't sing a song of joy or a song of Zion, as simply understood. But this, this is a song of Zion. This is his song of joy, where he says that if I forget to make Jerusalem my highest joy, may I lose the skill to ever praise you. If I should forget to remember Jerusalem, may I not be able to sing to you. This is his song of Zion. This is ultimately his song of joy. Like the psalmist here, we should make Jerusalem our highest joy. Not the geographical Jerusalem, mind you, but the heavenly Jerusalem, that is heaven itself, where we are seated on the throne with Jesus itself, where we are seated with Jesus on the right hand of God. Ultimately, we need to make heaven our heart's desire and our joy. But why do we do that? Why do we make heaven our highest joy? Why do we focus on heaven itself? And I think that there are several reasons. And one of it, ultimately, is because Christ is there. Christ is there. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, Set your hearts on things above. Why? Because Christ is there. Christ is seated there on the right hand of God. So you put your affections and your desires on heavenly things because that is where Christ is. We set our hearts on heaven because that is where we are spiritually. In Ephesians, it tells us that God has raised us up with Christ 
and seated us with who? With Jesus in the heavenly realms. Seated us with Christ. And this Christ is on the right hand of the throne of God. I think that we are quite close to the throne of God too. All right? And so we are there spiritually. And so we live with one foot in heaven and one foot on this world. And because we have one foot in heaven, we set our hearts on heaven itself. We put that to be our highest joy. Ultimately, we make heaven our highest joy because our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 mentions that. But we also make heaven our highest joy because it enables us to persevere. It enables us to persevere. And you can see that that was also true for Jesus. In Hebrews, Jesus looks here and says, For the joy that is set before him, the joy of this exaltation to the right hand of God, for that joy, Jesus endured the cross, scorning his shame, despising his shame, so that eventually he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If future joy provided the motivation for Jesus to endure his sufferings in the world, how much more it would be for us? How much more it would be for us? For us then too, the joy of heaven, of sharing in the glorified body of Christ, Jesus, that should be the motivation and the resource and the reason for us to persevere as faithful disciples of Christ Jesus in this world. The key to perseverance in the midst of suffering is to take the long view. It is to take the long view. And we will not be able, we will never be able to endure the sufferings of this world without keeping our focus on the eternal joy that is stored and kept safe for us in heaven. We cannot make sense of the suffering in this world without a proper understanding of heaven. And that the joy of heaven is the basis for perseverance and thanksgiving in this present world itself. And the joy of heaven is very much, you know, like a ray of clouds, like a ray of sunlight that disperses, that breaks through the dark clouds that envelop us, that surrounds us. It scatters it away. It gives us hope. Now, someone might bring up the old saying, you know, you know, you are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good at all. Some people may say that. But I say that you will not be much earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. We won't be much good in this present world unless our perspectives and our values are constrained and configured according to the values of heaven itself. We won't be much good in this present world if our lives are not changed to our perspective of where we should be in the future. And so we resolve, we resolve to make heaven our highest joy. And in doing so, we hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home. Now we come to the final way in which we hold fast to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home. And that is by trusting, by trusting God for justice when justice is not found in this world. 
reading here in verses 7 to 9. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day the Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, this section here is surely one of the most difficult ones because it is an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of imprecation, a psalm that calls down calamity, curse, and judgment on one's enemies. And here the psalmist cries to God to judge two different people, the Edomites and the Babylonians. Firstly, the Edomites here, he says here, remember what the Edomites did. You see, the Edomites kept the Judeans from escaping when Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem. They killed those who tried to escape, or they would capture them and then hand them over to the Babylonians. Moreover, they would try and encourage the Babylonians to tear the city of Jerusalem down to its foundations. In essence, they helped Babylon destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem. You read about this in Obadiah, in the prophet Obadiah. Therefore, because of that, because of their being accomplices to Babylon itself, the psalmist tells God to remember all the evil that the Edomites did. And in terms of remembering, it's not just only cognitive remembering, but rather it's to remember and to act on it. And so the psalmist is asking God to bring down judgment, to punish the Edomites for the evil that they did. And the second group of people that the psalmist is throwing down curses on are the Babylonians. It says here, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you. Ultimately, when the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem itself, they were brutal. They were vicious. They slaughtered peoples. They slaughtered the pregnant women. And they squashed the babies there. And here then, and because of the atrocities that the Babylonians did, the psalmist prays that God will bring on Babylon the same atrocities that the Babylonians had committed against them. The psalmist expresses this in his own version of a beatitude. Happy is the one who repays you for what? For what you have done to us. Happy is the one, or blessed is the one, who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How do we make sense of such a passage? How do we understand such a passage? And throughout history, several alternatives have been proposed. One alternative is to say that this portion of Psalm is sub-Christian. It's sub-Christian. It is not relevant for us and therefore should be removed from the Bible. But I think that this is too extreme for us who affirm that all of Scripture is God's word to us. Another way to approach it is to say, well, this is what the psalmist did, but it's not what we should do. This is what the psalmist did, but it's not what we should do. After all, remember that the Scripture talks about David committing adultery, but it's not telling us to do that. So maybe this is just a description of what the psalmist did, but it's not prescribing that we would do the same thing too. But I think that before we come to any conclusion, we should perhaps try to understand the psalmist's rationale, the rationale 
for making such a curse. And that the principle that the psalmist is enunciating or is undergirding his prayer of curses and judgment of people ultimately is this principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So what the psalmist asks for is not more than what the Babylonians did to the Israelites. The curse, then, is an outflow of the psalmist's understanding of justice, of what is right and wrong. And moreover, the psalmist, in calling down curses on his enemies, he is calling down from a posture of impotence, posture of weakness. And he protests against the arrogance of the violent here. And he recognizes that God alone, that God alone is the source of deliverance and righteous judgment. And so, therefore, he implores God to execute justice. But nonetheless, you know, I think that we are just shocked by the vividness, by the realism, by its intensity, its white-hot intensity here. And I expect the reason that why we might be uncomfortable with this psalm is because we have never seen evil in such intensity itself nor have we been victimized in the same degree that the psalmist has. But others have. Others have experienced such evil. Do you remember several years ago, in in Libya itself, ISIS was running rampant throughout all the area. And in this one episode, they captured 21 Coptic Christians and forced them to renounce their faith. But when they refused to renounce their faith, they beheaded them, right on the beaches itself. You also see recently in the last couple of years, where the churches, the Coptic churches in Egypt have been bombed itself. And ultimately here, when, here, when you see them acting with such impunity, if you were related to one of those who were killed, how would you respond? Would you call down curses? Would you ask God to intervene? I think that I would. I think that I would have. But honestly, we somehow are a little bit, rest, a little bit uncomfortable with this because how do we compare what we see in Psalm 137 with what Jesus teaches us? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you yeah, have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what does Jesus say? I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or what does Paul say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And here you know that the principle of wanting retribution, for God to bring judgment down on enemies, appears to be somewhat contrary to what Jesus or Paul is saying. Does that mean that there is no place for such prayers in the New Testament. Does that mean that? I don't think so. Because there are prayers that are asking for retributive justice even within the New Testament. In Galatians, Paul says that if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel other than what I have proclaimed to you, let him be cursed. Let him be under God's curse. Or in 2 Timothy here, Paul tells Timothy here, Alexander the metal worker did me, me, a great deal of harm, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. 
or even in the book of Revelations itself. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, then here John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. And what did they cry out to God for? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge their blood? And in Revelation 8, God ultimately avenges them. So all of this then seems to suggest that there is a place for such prayers itself, that there is a place in the Christian life where we ask God for justice and vengeance to be done on our behalf. And I do not think that it is inappropriate to pray such prayers, but, 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 I think that we have to be very cautious and very hesitant about it. And I would only pray these prayers only in the face of rampant, and unrepentant evil. Only in the face of rampant and unrepentant evil. But even in the midst of it, I think we need to remember one thing, that the prayer for retributive justice is not the same as a prayer for personal revenge. It is not the same as that, because these prayers do not ask God to give us the resources and the opportunity so that we can take vengeance on our enemies ourselves. Rather, They ask God to do so, and they acknowledge that he has the freedom to act or not act in the way that he sees best fit. We are asking for a God who stands both over us and our enemy to execute justice as he deems fit. So I think that this is one way I think that Christians can appropriate this prayer in response to rampant and unrepentant evil. But I think that there's another way where Christians can appropriate this psalm. And that this prayer, the prayers here, I think, can be an important tool for people who have been deeply hurt. Who have been deeply hurt so that they can move on to a place that they can forgive others. It is a tool whereby those who have been deeply hurt can utter so that it enables them eventually to move on to a place of forgiving others. And let me explain this here. In the New Testament itself, it calls us to forgive our enemies. But the call to forgive our enemies, the call to forgive the offender here, it may be premature at times. And this is especially true in cases where there is deep pain and hurt, where the victim has not fully processed the damage that has been done. For example, in instances of sexual abuse. In such instances here, the pressure to forgive can lead to a false sense of guilt, or the premature forgiveness can become cheap forgiveness. Space must first be given for the victim to heal. Space must be given for the victim to heal. And one way this can be done is to allow the victim to model his prayers along the lines of the prayers of lament and the prayers of imprecation itself. Prayers ultimately that call down curses and judgment on the enemy. Through such lament and imprecation, the church affirms with the victim the following the victim, the following, something bad did happen to you. 
It should not have happened to you. It was not your fault. Your offender should face justice. And God will execute justice on his own timetable. And this step then allows the victim to recover, to heal. It validates her pain, enables her to process what has happened, validates her longing for justice, and encourages her to trust God for divine justice. And as she entrusts her situation to the divine judge who stands both above her and the offender, she knows that her offender will face God's justice if he does not repent. This perspective then ultimately lays the framework for genuine forgiveness so that eventually and in the right time, we can then follow the example of Jesus who, while hanging on the cross, uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. But ultimately, space must be given for the victim to heal, to recover, before they can come to a place where they can forgive. And so, what is one way by which we hold on to the hope that God will set all things right, that God will ultimately bring us home by trusting God for justice. Now, we come a long way in this psalm here. And as long as we're living in this world itself, we will constantly face evil. And if you haven't faced evil, keep on living. You will face it one day. Now, some of us may be inflicted more than others, But how does this evil impact you? How does it affect you? Does it push you towards God, or does it push you away from God? Hudson Taylor made this comment here, you know, that it does not matter how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies, where it lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you closer to his heart. So I pray, too, that when evil strikes here, that it will press you towards God, that in the midst of alienation and evil, may you hold on to the hope that God will ultimately lead us home. May you hold on to this hope by lamenting that this world is not a home by resolving to make heaven your true home, your highest joy, and by trusting God to bring about justice in his own time. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, this is a heavy psalm, and it may speak to some of us who have heavy hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would heal their pain that they will learn to come towards you to lay on the altar the pain and the suffering that they face, that they will cling to the hope that heaven provides, and that they will trust you, Lord, to bring about justice in your own time. We pray this your son's name. Amen.